Gents, we're going through my academic integrity module A11, crossing boundaries. Academic integrity is uh, discovering arts and humanities. We're going through the introduction. It's written by Carolyn Price, page one. You have now reached the third and final book of A11, discovering arts and humanities. In this book, we introduce a third theme, crossing boundaries. On the face of it, this is rather looser than looser theme than reputations and traditions as we are writing the materials we discovered all kinds of ways in which might be interpreted but we also quickly recognize the importance of focusing in a particular set of interpolations and also and we shall seek you to do that too hence this final book engages with the theme of crossing boundaries in three ways First, the materials in this book are designed to cross the boundaries between different subject areas. In Chapter 1, we shall investigate an ancient Greek play, Antigone, as well as exploring the play as its historical context. We will also consider how it was been reinterpreted in the modern world in Chapter 2. We shall build on this by exploring a second play, The Island which was created and performed in, performed in South Africa in the 1970s and draws out the story of Antigon in Chapter 3. It maintains the focus of South Africa, investigating the role and music of political and social protests. Taken together, these three chapters draw on the disciplines of classical studies, English literature and music to consider how it works of drama and music have been used to explore questions about power community and protests and how they have been used as vehicles of protest in their own right. Another thread linking these chapters is language. While chapter one considers these kind of choices translators need to make. Chapter two introduces some some insights from language studies to help you think about how choosing to express uh, oneself in particular language can carry a meaning. A point that were also important when considering musical lyrics in Chapter 3. In Chapter 4 and 5, art historians and historians work together to investigate the sculptures created in the West African Kingdom of Benin, which is now part of the Nigeria. We will examine the context in which those sculptures were first created, how many of them came to be in Europe museums and how they have been understood or misunderstood by European scholars and artists. And you have also, you will also have an opportunity to engage with continuing debate about whether these objects should be returned to Nigeria. Finally, chapters six and seven bring together viewpoints from religious studies and philosophy to explore Buddhism and its reception in Europe. In chapter six, we'll examine how Buddhist practice and ideas spread across Asia and Europe. In some of the different ways in which they were being taken up in contemporary Britain, there were be another chance here to think about the issue of language and translation. In Chapter 7, we will investigate the views of the German philosopher Arthur Schopfner, who believed that there were significant parallels between his own theory of compassion and Buddhist thought. And we will explore the views of Buddhist thinker Shantideva, who offers a rather different account of compassion. All these discussions invite you to work across disciplinary boundaries, drawing together information and, and method analyses from two or more subjects across 
to shed the light of the single topic. Working across disciplines is an important part of studying the arts and humanities. If your ultimate ambition is to study within a single discipline, you are likely to find that bringing that the approaches to different subject areas together enriches your understanding. It might, it might do this by providing a broader understanding of context in which an artwork or idea was produced. A deeper understanding of the significance of an object or practice to the people who created. A more rounded understanding of the, of the complex work, for example, a song that has both words and music. In approaching a topic discussed in his book, you'll be able to draw on the skills and knowledge that you have been developing throughout the module. However, however drawing by different discipline perspectives together, you'll also be able to tackle more complex questions and explore sourcing arguments in greater depth. There is a second sense in which these chapters are concerned with crossing boundaries. They are concerned in which happens when things, work of sculpture or drama, styles of music, religious practices and philosophical ideas, cross boundaries of time, place or language. How do things change when they move into a different cultural context? How do different cultures understand each other? This is not the first time you have met this kind of question. In the very first unit of the module, for example, you discovered how Cleopatra's reputation is changed as it's crossed cultural boundaries from Egypt to Rome to the Islamic world and to the 1960s Hollywood. In this book we will examine this topic in more depth by investigating for example what happens to Antigone, a play written in ancient Greece translated or adapted for the use of the modern setting. Why would a group of actors in 1970s South Africa turn inspiration to an ancient Greek play? How did music of South Africa combine difficult musical traditions and how did music become a vehicle of protest? How did the sculptures of the West African Kingdom of Benin adapt their work when they were first encountered Europe, traders in the 16th century? And how, in later centuries, did European scholars and artists react to the highly sophisticated works that they produced? How have Buddhist doctrines and practices evolved as they have spread out from India over the centuries? What changes and what can be learned? What religious practices and philosophical ideas reach new places? There is a third sense in, in which the theme of crossing boundaries can be understood in this book, as well as investigating what, ha what happens when artworks and ideas cross boundaries. We will consider that their power to bring people together. This theme is particularly prominent in chapters 2 and 3, in which we will examine the power of drama and music to express and galvanise political protests. In what follows you will study cases in which the crossing of boundaries has elicited a flash of recognition or inspired a flourish of creativity. But not all the stories in this book are happy ones. The crossing boundaries has often been accompanied by violence, pre prejudice and re rep recession. In this book what we shall deal with some challenging and potentially disturbing materials. The chapters of South Africa include discussion of the racist legislation and supported the system apartheid, while the chapters of the Art of Benin include images of human sacrifice and racist assertions from the earlier centuries and about supposed superiority of the Europeans to Africans. 
You might find that some of the material discussed in this book provokes a strong emotional response, discomfort, indignation, or even disgust. There is nothing wrong with these responses. Responses studying arts and humanities does not require clinical coolness. Indeed, there would be no point investigating these topics if they did not matter to us. The point is rather not to stop with your first response but to continue probing. In order to try to understand what source reveals about the situation, it is helping us to understand cultures and histories in their aspects and that the study of arts and humanities can help us to negotiate an increasingly complex world. Going to chapter one, The Antigone, by, written by Jessica Hughes. The page is page nine of the introduction for The, the Antigone. The Sophocles, Antigone, is one of the most famous plays to survive from classical antiquity, and it has been performed and retold in later times, more often than other Greek drama. You have already read the synopsis of Antigone's story as told by the Sophocles, and you have briefly met some major theoretical reworkings of the Antigone from the 20th and 21st century. You have also considered how Antigone relates to this book theme of crossing boundaries. Since the play itself has crossed temporal, geographical and cultural boundaries, as it has been translated, reversionized and preformed in different global contexts, in this chapter we will focus on the understanding the play is an ancient Greek context. And we will also begin to think about the loaded act of a translation between one language and another, in this case between ancient Greek and English. This will be useful background when you come to look at, look at other later receptions of Antigone, including South African play, The Island, which you'll meet in the next unit. Section 2 of this chapter explores the historical background to the play and introduces you to ancient Greek theatre. Section 3 addresses the issue of translation, looking in detail at some contrasting translations of the play's prelude. In Section 4, you'll read the whole play, Antigone, in an English translation by Don Taylor by the end of this chapter. You should have solid knowledge of the plot of the Antigone as well as understanding some of these of the broader issues that the play raises. Page 10, Antigone, historical background. This section will introduce you to some of the basic historical background of the Sophocles play, Antigone. Knowing about the social, sensual and religious context in which play was originally devised, and perform can give us such deeper understanding of its story and also help us to imagine how the earliest Greek audiences would have responded to the action of unfolded on a stage before them. We're going to look at activity one. Turn to your set book, read entitled Sophocles 496-406 BC. Chrono the chronology timeline that follows. Are there any names of the event or that are familiar to you? Circle or jot down any that you recognise. It is possible that many of the names and historical events mentioned were unfamiliar to you. However, some of them made a brief appearance in Book 2, for instance, in Chapter on Greek and Roman Sculpture. We encountered the Second Persian Invasion of Athens in 40, 480 BCE, which, if you remember, art historians conventionally use as a start of a classical period of Greek sculpture. Meanwhile, in the Chapter on Question and Tradition, 
you came across this dog and Fusicidides and the Peloponnesian war between Athens and Sparta, the life of Sophocles, was thus framed by the Persian Wars and a Peloponnesian war and coincided what was sometimes known as the Golden Age of the Athenian democracy. In your study of Book 2, you have already encountered some of the basic ideas of the Athenian democracy, including its central institutions, the assembly of the bar and the law courts, and the differences between the democracy and the early rule by triumphs. The play Antigone did not depict the world of the democratic Athens. Rather, it is set in the Greek city of the Thebes, in a mythical time that would already have, have seemed archaic for the play's original 5th century BC audience. However, Sophocles wrote the play with a keen consciousness of the political issue of his own time. And there are many ways in which his Antigone chimed with debates that were happening in the 5th century Athens, such as increasing uh, emphasis of loyalty to the democratic police city-state over the traditional family unit. At the end of the 6th century BCE, the Athenian citizenship had been recognised by the political Clasphenes into a ten local group, Demis, which replaced the early archaic system of the tribunal family units. There had been also been a new legislation on burial. As the state sought to curtle the grand and luxurious funerals put on the wealthy arist aristocratic families, this growing privilege on the police over the family and various ethical consequences is it entailed is something that the play Antigone challenged, its first audience to think about. We're going to turn to the set book again, this time to the commentary. Read two sections on the festival and, and the performance. As you read, jot down the thoughts of the ancient Greek experience going to the theatre. Is anything that strikes you this unusual com uh, comparison with what you know about modern theatre productions? Are there any similarities? The theatre and Diana situate on the south-east slope on the Aquapolis Hill, Athens, Brian Jansen at Lamia in Sophocles time. The staging and most of the seats were made out of wood. The stone remains seen. Here date primarily from the 4th century. It's an open air stage. Whether or not you go to theatre yourself, I'm sure you realise that the experience of watching a play in the ancient Greece was not much like a modern day trip to the theatre. In identifying the major differences, you might have signalled out the religious context at the play, which was part of the much larger state-funded festival dedicated to the gods Dionysus, the city of the great Dionysus, Dionysia. Note also the outdoor setting, which would have meant there were no opportunities to play with artificial lighting or the tightly controlled sound effects. Often used in modern performances, other important differences relate to the performance itself, for instance. You may have been surprised to read all the main roles in the drama were played by three masked male actors, whose body language and exaggerated physical gestures helped to compensate for their lack of facial expressions. The chorus, meanwhile, was formed not of the professional actors, but the Athenian male citizens, its 15 members sang and danced to the musical accompaniment of an Olos 
or double pipe. The olos could also be heard on the non-theoretical context in classical Athens, such as a symposium, drinking party for which female musicians, musicians could be hired for the evening to entertain male guests. One further important difference was the size and makeup of the audience. We do not have, we do not know precisely how many people attend plays like Antigone. Current estimates tend to range somewhere between 4,000 and 6,000 per performance. But Aristophanes, a classical Athenian comic playwright, 450 to 386 BCE, variously puts the figure at between 10,000 and 13,000. Nor do we know whether women attend the plays in any significant numbers. Most scholars would agree that 5th century, 5th century BCE audiences was largely composed of Athenian citizens men. That is, the same group who could vote and participate fully in the life of the democratic polis. There would also have been some foreigners in the audience, including both visitors and metics foreigners who lived in the city. The political population in Athens and Attica, the area of countryside around Athens, at the time of the Sophocles, is currently estimated as being somewhere between 200,000 and 300,000 with adult male citizens forming around 10% of the number, looking at the capacity of the theatre of the Dionysus. Then it, this suggests that a very high proportion of city's political decision makers would have been present for the original performance of Sophocles' Antigone. In antiquity, going to the theatre was a collective participatory activity for which we really do not have any modern parallels. Translations on page 15. You now have a sense of the original performance context of Sophocles' Antigone. We will shortly begin our reading of the English translation of the play. However, before we jump into the text, it is important to think a little bit about the process of a translation from the ancient Greek. A process that links neatly to our theme of the crossing boundaries. You have already worked through translation as part of your study on this module in Book 1, Chapter 1, Cleopatra, for instance. You read sources that were originally written in ancient Greek, Arabic or Latin. And Book 1, Chapter 7, Van Gogh, you encountered some of the artistic artist's letters, which were originally written in Dutch and French. In Book 2, you again met ancient Greek sources in Chapter 1, Greek and Roman sculpture. In Chapter 5, Questioning Tradition. Although the issue of translation has not been discussed at any length until now, each English translation used in the module has been selected very carefully by the unit authors. This is because the choices made by translator, translators can be affect our enjoyment and understanding of our text, and even the messages that we take away from it. As a general point, you may notice that the imaginary of the closeness and the distance is often, when used talking about translations are close or literal. Translation is generally one that attempts to mirror the original or source language. Whether in structure, mood or vocabulary choice, less close translations are more liberal in terms of how they approach the original source language. They often update the language and sometimes willfully introduce anachronisms. Such translations are so far from the originals that are stepping behind considering translation at all and instead get called versions or retellings. 
Note versions is an elastic term that is also sometimes used for translation for Sophocles Antigone. These might include the story of Antigone, C. Figure 3 by Al Smith, first published in 2013, which retells a myth for the perspective of a crow perched on the gates of Thebes and a noble home. Fire 2017 by Camilla Shazmi, which recasts Antigone as a girl defending her brother who has left London to join a militant group known as ISIS, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. Antigone Al Smith, the story of Antigone Al Smith, amazing daily telegraph, brilliantly told, beautiful. The issue of translation will recur throughout this unit, both in our reading of play and text and our online work, where we will be faced with the slightly different process of translating the play from the printed page onto the stage of the screen. To introduce this theme, let us take a brief look at the raw material that translators of Greek are working with, reproduced here and are first met ten lines of the Antigone in ancient Greek. Unless you already know some Greek, this probably seems nearly impossible to decipher. But you may be able to see that the title is Antigone. Capital G is um, like a, it looks like a T without the other side of the T in Greek, or the capital E is shown as H. And the Antigone, the first speaker in the play, the second line of a speech, perhaps you can even make out the names of Zeus and Opidius. But what does the rest of the passage mean? Read, we're looking at the activity now on page 18. We read it through the following two English translations of this opening passage of the play. In your opinion, in your opinion what are the main differences difference between them? How does the differences affect the way we understand the speech? The extract from one, translation by David Slavitt, Dear Sister, is mean. What evils that come from Oedipus, our father, has Zeus not sent to burden our lives. There is nothing, no shame, no pain, no sorrow, no disgrace that you and I have not endured. And now comes the General's new proclamation. What have you heard, or do you take notice of how your enemies move against our friends? Extract 2 is translations by H.D.F. Kitto. Antigone. Ismeni. My own dear sister, dear Ismeni. How many miseries our father caused, and is there one of them that does not fall on us while yet we live? Unhappiness, calamity, disgrace, dishonour. Which of these have you and I not known? And now again, there is no order which they say brave Creon has proclaimed all the city, you understand? Or do you not yet know what outrage threatens one of those we love? Although they were both made in reference to the same ancient Greek text, two of these English translations are really quite different. The arrangement of the phrases across lines. The order of the words, the choice of words and the emphasis is placed on them. These are things that differ between two versions. For example, 
When comparing the translation, I noticed the same is meaning is repeated twice in the same line in the second translation by Kitto. Sophocles, 208, page 3. And that this translation also calls Creon by name, whereas the first translation by Slavit simply refers to him as a general Sophocles, 2007, on page 2. One point to note concerns the translation on the Greek word. Kakwabeth, Kakon. The last word in the second line. Slavic translate this word as eagles, sent from Zeus. While Kitto translate it as miseries, Oedipus caused. Both translations are technically correct since the Greek word encompasses a wide range of possible meanings. Other alternatives given a lexicon, Greek English dictionary, are ills, mischief, woes, distress, lose, losses, grieves and, or suffering but the choice of one word or the other and description of where the evils or miseries originated had subtle impact on how they, how the reader interpreted Antiphon's view of the father's opetus. Which famous story involves him unwittingly killing his own father and marrying his mother and eventually blind himself in shame and anger? Note how Slavit attributes the evils to Zeus, Sophocles, 2007, page 2. Unlike Kitu, who does not include any suggestion that the gods were responsible for the miseries of our father. Opidus calls Sophocles, 208, page 3. There's a picture at the bottom of a masked actors playing Antigone and Ismi from the, a 210 production of Antigone by Chris Vervain and the artist of the Theatre Partitioner based in London on page 19. Down to page 3 now. Ancient Greek. Ancient Greek is, is heavily... In inflected language, which means that the form of a word often changes according to the uh, grammatical role it plays in a sentence. It allows Greek sentences to be arranged in multiple ways, often to suit the poetic uh, meter. Decoding these sentence, sentences is part of what makes learning ancient Greek so challenging and rewarding. Moving down to the third, fourth and sixth uh, lines of the Greek text, can you see other letters OU? OU not to be confused with OV. Appears seven times over these three lines, either at the beginning of the words or in the last instance of their own. OU expresses a negative, and you can see a repetition reflected clearly into the translation by David Slavic, who renders the lines as there is nothing, no shame, no pain, no sorrow, no, no disgrace. That you and I have not endured. Sophocles. 2007 to page 2, HDF, Kitto. It makes a sub, uh, subtly different decision in translating these words. Not only in the choice of vocabulary, unhappiness, calamity, disgrace, dishonour, but also he does not add the emphatic, repetitive no in front of the abstract nouns, sophocles. Page, uh, 2008, page 3. This is one example of how Slavic's translation of the pastures is ever so slightly closer to the Greek original than the version by Kitto. We can see that this is to Slavic's use of the own word general, which is the literal translation of strategist, the pre, uh, penultimate word for the eighth line. As briefly mentioned earlier, Kitto specifies the name Creon, thus be given in Greek, even though the Greek audience who would have been familiar with the basic myth of Antigone and its main characters. It would have known 
exactly who Anticon was referring to in a speech. As an aside, Sophocles used the word strategus, which would have been a particular impact on the 5th century Athians who were watching the drama. At this part of the late century BC reforms, Kinesthenes has instituted a board of 10 annually elected strategy generals who are represented at one of the 10 new tribes of Athens. Some commentators of Antigone have seemed to use the word strategus here at the opening of the play to be assigned. One of the several throughout the play, the Sophocles was encouraging comparisons and connections to be drawn between the mythical situation of the Phoebes and a contemporary Athenian polis. This does not mean that the play was straightforward political allegory for contemporary events, but it does signal that it is potentially challenged of the complacency that may have settled into the new democracy. As you shall see, the play poses some awkward questions of the ideology that privileged loyalty to the polis over the interests of the individual family. We're going to look at the detail of a figure, Nestoros Vase from Luciana, Italy, showing an episode from Trojan War, had him brought before Priam by Paris, although others had interpreted the scene as Antigone before Creon by Guard, 390 to 380 BCE. Found as a Bas Basilicata, Italy, attributed by Dolan Painter, British Museum, London. Myth in ancient Greece. Myth was everywhere in the ancient world. Athians would have listened to the myths at recitals of epic poetry, handled cups and jars painted with mythic scenes, in the home of the Symposium, and looked up at them, temple, phrases and uh, pediments. The stories of the main characters of myth would have been familiar and instantly recognisable to most people in ancient Athens. However, this did not mean that there were single or fixed versions of any myth. Instead, individual playwrights and artists were free to innovate and provide their own unique angles of well-known episodes. As, as the previous section of this chapter has suggested, the act of translation is loaded one and can even affect whether a reader likes or dislikes a particular work of literature. Therefore, choosing a translation of Antigone for this module felt like a momentous decision. After much consideration, I opted for the translation by Don Taylor, an English director and playwright whose carer spanned 40 years of work in radio, theatre and television. Taylor's translation is somewhat further from the original Greek than those produced by David Slavitt and H.D.F. Kitto. In fact, it is slightly unusual because Taylor Swift himself did not work directly from the ancient Greek, but from a crib, which is very close to the literal English translation of the Greek. Taylor is writing his translation for the BBC production of the play that he is directing, which has to be broadcast on a prime-time television. He was therefore aiming to make the translation accessible, speakable and as appealing as possible to a broad audience. As Taylor explains in translator's notes, which is reproduced in the set text or productions, would have been convincing and a pleasure to Greek scholars who spent in life studying texts and thrillingly compelling new world opening up for viewers to whom Attic tragically 
wasn't even known. Don Taylor's translation was widely judged to be successful and has reappeared in several different contexts since the fir first use of 1986. It was used, for instance, in 2012 National Theatre production of Antigone, which starred Jodie Whittaker as Antigone and Christopher Ecclestone as Creon. This is the translation that we will be working together through the, in this chapter, but you may wish to think about the Taylor's translation in comparison of some of the others that we might have chosen. The translator's note is in our set text, gives further background and contains a useful discussion of different styles and types of translations. Jodie Whittaker in the title role of Antigone alongside Christopher Eccleston as Creon, the Polly Finley Theatre London, 2012. The photos by Joanne Pearson at the Arena Pal. Taylor's text does not provide line numbers, or nor does it explicitly separate and mark out the formal sections of the tragedy. Some other translations of Greek texts do not have one or both of these features. I have therefore listed the formal sections of the play following the table. You might like to pencil the names and divisions of these sections onto your own copy of the text as you move for the play. This will be more useful for two reasons. Firstly, so you have an idea of the overall standard shape of the Greek tragedy. And secondly, so that you can attribute each line to its correct section when you come to talk and write about a play. Note that the Paradise is the name given of the first choral song, which of course enters on the stage. The word literally means coming forward. Each subsequent choral song is called a transition, uh, no, a stasimon. Prologue Anticon Ismi. It's an Ismi Listen, page four to eight. So the section is a character, the Antigon Ismi. Opening words of the section is Ismi Listen. So Palug talking to Ismi. Ismi Listen. Parados, the first call song, the chorus. Page eight to ten in the set book. The life given sun has never shone more brightly. First episode, of course, Creon, the soldier. Senators, our country, like a ship at sea, has survived the hurricane. First statesman, second call song. Is there anything more wonderful on earth? Second episode, of course, the soldier. Creon Antigone is me, but wait, I can't believe my eyes. Second Tasman, third call song. They can call themselves lucky, the fortunate few. The episode, third episode, of course, Creon Hamian. Page 28-34. Creon, here comes your youngest son. Third Tasman, fourth call song. Page 34-35. When the god of unbridled passion makes war. Fourth episode, the chorus, Antigone Creon. Page 35-40. Yes, how can we talk of justice? Fourth Stasman, fourth call song. Page 40-1. to one. Others have suffered, my child like you. Fourth episode, Tiresis Creon the Chorus, page 42-7. to Senators of Phoebes, your king, Creon. Fifth statesman, sixth call song, page 47-48. Great God of many names. Exodus, the messenger. The chorus, 
Your dice, Creon. Page 48 to 55. Senators, listen. We will work through the first two sections in the stable together. The prologue. The play begins in the early morning outside the royal place of the Phoebes. We meet Antigone and Ismay who appear alone in the front of the place. Knowing that Phoebes is about to, a day's walk from Athens. We look at the activity. Read the first scene. The scene is set. Rem remember, I love you. Whatever happens. As you read, note down anything that strikes you as significant. You write on its text itself. Or, if you prefer, on a separate sheet of paper. Try to pick out at least one point in relation to the following three themes. Family, the dead and agenda. Family bonds are present. I need to find a pen so I can mark something like that. Or not. Not today. Yeah. The family bonds are present for the very first line of the play where Antigone invokes the blood she shares with her sister and their father. Opidus, Antigone's visceral devotion to her family comes out strongly throughout the entire passage like HDF Kitto. Taylor chooses to start Antigone's first speech with the name Ismi, Ismeni, and he also emphasises the word sister by placing it at the end of the second line, page 5. The passages, passage introduced a bond between sister and brother. That will be central to the whole play. Antigone cannot tolerate the idea that her brother, Polynices, to, is to lie unburied, or that she is, um, is forbidden from fulfilling her duty of giving him proper burial rights. She says, I won't betray him. Now that he is dead, page six, he is my brother. And like it or not, he's yours too. She tells Ismeni, page six, and in response to Ismeni's anxieties about disobeying Creon, Antigone starkly retorts, You can't forbid me to love my brother, page six, the dead. The dead are also present from the very start of the play. Ismi's first speech recounts the terrible news. The both our brothers are dead, and Antigone echoes her, her words. A few lines later, we have two, two brothers, both of them dead. Notice how this passage gives an active role to the dead. Ismi says, May God forgive me, and the spirits of the dead, with Antigone proclaims, The approval of the dead is everlasting. She then threatens Ismeni that he will despise you to and justify. Referring to the dead brother of Polynices, for Antigone and Ismi, but also the Apian audience who were watching the drama. The dead were active and a sentiment participants in life. Who knew what was happening in the world of the living and felt strong emotions in response to those? Events are those needed, pitying and protecting. The audiences watching Antigone would never be shown the corpse of the Panaces. However, its decaying presence off stage would be impossible for them to forget. The lack of burial did not simply mean a lack of closure for the living. It meant that the dead person would suffer for eternity. Gender, the past should also give us some insight to an ancient conceptions of gender. Perhaps most explicit in Esme's statement, that they are women that all physically weaker are barred from a political influence. The very fact that Antigone and Ishmael needed to sneak out outside for a private meeting hints 
at the normal constraints placed on female activity, as perhaps does the fact that Ismi had not already heard about the decree issued by Quion, indicating that she had been isolated in the palace. As you can imagine, the gendered aspects of the play had been picked up in the late historical periods and underpinned some of the later uses of the story as political. Sometimes explicitly feminist protest, but it is important to un underline the, an uh, the ancient audiences would not have been so perturbed by the image of female subservience as classicists DM Carter has explained. Sophical plays provides us with two competing models of female behaviour, Ismi and Antigon. There should be no doubt that Ismi would have presented the lesser challenge to the ancient Greek audience and admiration for the Antigon. It would have been help, held to, despite the fact that she is a woman, not because of it, to enlighten modern audience. And now, on the other hand, the fact of her womanhood gives an extra political edge to her protest. Not only does what she do what is right to defiance of the authority, but she breaks free of the limits placed on her gender by society. The Greeks would not have recognised the truth, this second statement, for they did not tend to see the position of the woman in their society as unjust in itself. This is... This is one example of how the play Antigone is crossing boundaries of the time and space can highlight differences between society, in this case, differences between ancient and modern attitudes towards gender equality. Such examples of difference remind us that we need to try and break up free from our modern cultural frameworks and assumptions. If we were to approach an understanding of what the play meant to ancient audiences, the problem has been explored in detail by another historian in ancient Greece. Christian saw Vinio Inward in a 1989 article. Sorvino Inward argues that the Antigone would have been seen in accuracy as a bad woman, or at least as someone who had been bad at performing the controversial roles ascribed to a classical Greek woman, 1989. Sylvania Inward draws attention to the laws that made it the business of the police, not the family, to dispose of the bodies of the traitors. And she explains how, although our modern response to Queen's decree is one of the outrage at the inhumanity of leaving a body unburied, a classical Greek audience would have seen the problem very different and may well have been in agreement with the Creon's course of action. At the early stage of the play, 1989, page 139-40, this raises a wider issue that the reception of the ancient drama. While the modern version of translation of Antigone often make the play relevant and powerful, for our own times they often also make it harder for us to lose a perceptual filters. To borrow the phrase of Sovroni Inward, 1989, page 134, that is, they often present the ancient world in a way that makes it seem less alien to us. Paradoxically, this makes it harder for us to cross the cultural boundaries between our own world and the world of the ancient Greeks. Take, for example, the phrase of the unlimited power of the state that Esme utters. Page 8. This sounds ominous to a modern reader, especially when it dec 
claimed against the set design as it evokes the visual imagery of a 20th century fascism. However, the ancient Greek phrase being translated here is biopolitan, which means the strength of the citizens of the polis. In ancient Greece, the conception of the police was much more than just a state. It was entire social and religious world that the citizens inhabited, in fact, another way of translating this phrase, might be against the will of the people, which puts a very different spin on Antiquan section and how far it might have been approved by the fifth audiences. This is something to keep in mind. As you read through the play, although most modern reception of Antiquan present a relatively simply and meaningfully dictomy between individual and state. This dictomy did not even exist in the same way in classical Greece. Before we move on to the Paradise, have a quick look back over the first passage. At the, at the shape of the dialogue between Antigone and Ismi, the way the speech is divided up between the two characters you should be able to see what there's quickening of the tempo of the two places. Where the sisters exchange a string of short sentences, each lasting for a single line in the ancient Greek text, although they look slightly longer, two or three lines. In your English translation is the first for, is from Ismenes, wait a minute, Antigone. And the second is from Ismenes, I reverence them. This is an example of a style of speech commonly found in Greek tragedy called Stichomythia. Switch exchange of line between two characters. There will be several other instances throughout the play, generally in situations of tension and debate. So it's worth watching out for those as you progress through the text. The next section of the play is the first choral song, The Paradise. We have already been through some background about the ancient Greek chorus in the commentary. So, you know about the chorus members were selected from the Athian citizenry and how the choruses were an essential component of the drama, a coping and middle ground between the actors and the audience in Antigone that the chorus represented. The Theoban elders, a group of older men who had supported Opidius as a ruler, and who would not act as advisors to the new king, Kruan. Note that the chorus would have been entered from the sides of the theatre, sleeping the paradise entry song as they came into view. We can look at the next activity. Read the paradise from the given son. So vital to the state, jot down one or two lines about its language and tone. In a discussion, in contrast to the dismissal mood of the previous passage, the choral song is full of joy and relief. The paradise is arranged in four stanzas. First and fourth are happy hymn-like, while the middle two tell the story of previous night's battle. The language is dramatic and full of sensory stimuli. The thunder, lighting in strong hot sunshine, the grinding, crashing, and the metallic taste of blood. The passage also devises of metaphor and smile, which yet you met in Book 2, Chapter 4, reading poetry. For example, simile of an eagle is used 
Corps and Argive Army, while the city of Thebes is represented as a dragon. The smile of the dragon would have reminded Sophocles' 5th century BCE audiences of the legendary foundation myths of the city of Thebes, in which a man called Cadmus killed a dragon of the site of the future city and sowed in the teeth of the earth. From each tooth there sprang up a soldier, who would have later become a nobleman of the Fabian city. It is one of the mythical references in this passage. And it again raises the issue of this serpentine audience responses to the play. Many or most 20th century readers of, the, of this text will never before have heard the name Cadmus. And even for the Greek scholars have spent a life studying the text. Taylor in Sophocles 2006. The mythical names in the passage could not possibly evoke the same associations as they would from ancient Athian. Watching the drama increasingly. In the translation you're, you're reading, Don Taylor has actually glossed many of those unfamiliar names within the text, for instance. Potenus, the uh, Persephone, is a sad-faced queen of the shadows. The Greek at this point just reads the Persephone. Taylor's additions make his trans, uh, translation somewhat lengthier than the original Greek text. And the closest English translations, but they fit with his aim of making the text more accessible for the 18, 1980s British television audience, whose knowledge of classical mythology could not be taken for granted. As the play progresses, the relationship between the chorus and the other characters will develop and will, have to, will help to shape the audience's views on both Antigone and Creon. To a certain extent, the chorus, the focalised, the action, that is to say, we are invited to see drama through their eyes, while at the same time being free to, to form our own opinions of what is happening. Even if the paradis, we might argue that the chorus is subtly influenced how we interpret and judge the two main characters of the play. In one sense, we might see the song and encourage a negative view of Antigone, since the, the stresses of danger that his city has experienced and shows the god Zeus working against the author. The Polynices, the, the potentially disturbing Antigone's claims that she is respecting the will of God by bearing her brother. However, we also hear Zeus described as he who has inflated pride. This fault of inflated pride could be very applied to the character who will shortly enter the stage, the new king of Thebes, Antigone's uncle, Creon. Now to read the rest of the play as you work for the text, you might like to split up the section according to the outline structure of Antigone, table in section 4. If you haven't done already on, the tech, on my text, I drew a pencil line to separate the sections, but you should use a small sticky notes if you prefer, or another system, any other system. As you read through the play, you might find it helpful to write a brief summary from a couple of lines or to a paragraph of what happens in each section. Jot down anything that seems particularly significant to you. When you have finished, pause and reflect on what you have read and written. Who do you, do you side with, Antigone or Creon? 
To what extent do you side book with what that character or for how long? At what point in the play do you seize to decide with them, if at all? When do you return to the module website at the end of the chapter? You'll be asked to watch some key episodes in the play using the televised production for which Don Taylor's translation was made. And you also have access to the whole film if you have time. You might also like to watch it through the beginning to the end. In the summary, in this chapter, you've explored an ancient Greek context in which Sophocles wrote this play. Antigon included the performance as part of the festival of Dionysus in Athens. You have considered some of the major differences between ancient Greek theatre and contemporary theatre. And have furthered your understanding of our political world of the 5th century BC Athens, which you had already encountered in Book 2, Chapter 1. Over the course of the chapter, you've also investigated the process of translation from ancient Greek into English, thinking about how, to, how the choices have been individually translators can shape our interceptions of the play and its characters. Perhaps most importantly, you've also completed the first read through of the play, the English translation of by Don Taylor. Now that you have finished Antigone, I wonder if you made, what have you made of it. You may have found it is hard to judge about whether Creonet or Antigone is in the rights. If so, you are not alone, for the critics are always being divided about whether to see Antigone's unwillingness to bend in the face of the authority and misguided as we all inspire and either her clash with Creon was often used to indirectly represent other power struggles of, in other times, especially those between individuals or marginalised groups and the state of the rule over them. The next chapter will introduce you to one, to one such reception of Antigone in which the myth can be rapidly reconfined to speak to the political injustice of the 20th century of South Africa. Going to chapter 2, The Islands. I'm going to read a few pages of The Islands. Page 39, The Introduction. Before starting this chapter, you were invited to think about how you might create a play from an everyday object, such as a blanket. If you had a go at doing that, you will be gained some experience of the kind of acting exercise that contrib contributed to creation of the play, The Island. As you move on this chapter, you can discover some of the other ways that this play might be said about the acting. The name of their character, two characters, for example, are the real names of these two actors, who along with the playwright, Athol Fugar devised its performance, John Canny and Winston Misfoni. The play is about putting on a play, the play that you studied in the previous chapter, Antigone, in addition. The play might be said about the prompting you as an audience and to act. In all these senses, acting is not just theoretical but political. In this chapter, you'll also be introduced to the same recent history of South Africa. During the period of the Arpifid, the next chapter will develop the further by exploring how music was used in South Africa as a form from process. Both chapters shared an interest in what different audiences might bring to a given performance, whether that is classical play or traditional song. In an interview, John Caney likened the audience to another actor who must be constantly mowed to cross the boundaries of illusory distance, to fill his plight 
as theirs. Kane quoted in Copland, 2008, page 257. In the case of the land, this means that we will want to look at the ways of John and Winston, attempt to lure their audience onto the stage, to treat them as a third actor in their drama. This will partly involve thinking about how ancient Greek and play is re uh, represented and transformed through the practice in South African theatre. But it will also mean paying attention to the way what stage becomes a meaningful boundary in itself. And with the study of music in the next chapter, we'll want to ask whether this is a space in which performers and the audience are brought together within the same plight or one in which they are kept firmly apart. Originally coined in the 1930s, the term apartheid literally means apartness. The world the word belongs to language known as Afrikaans and modified from a Dutch and one of the two European languages. The other being English, used by European settlers in South Africa. Over the course of several centuries, the Afrikaans speakers or Afrikaners established themselves as powerful as a powerful minority. Exercising control of South Africa's government, predominantly Afrikaner National Party began using the term apartheid in the early 1940s to describe a social system of racial segregation. And from 1948, when the National Party now defeated for moderate interest in the country's elections, apartheid became enshrined in South Africa's law. The Population Reg Registration Act of the 1950s assigned every South African to a racial group. White, black, Asian, or coloured. That's it. That is mixed heritage, and restrictions were established. As to as to where different races could not live and work, from 1952 onwards, new tighter pass laws meant that all non-whites were required to carry identity documents, passbooks showing their racial group and the areas were allowed to go. For both residents and employment enforcing these laws entailed heavy policing and repression of the non-white majority. Resistance to the apartheid look took many political forms, but the African National Congress, ANC, founded in 1912, was an especially prominent force one of its leaders, a young black lawyer called Nelson Mandela, 1918-13. He was sentenced to life imprisonment in 1964, but continued to inspire black Africans from his prison cell on Robin Island and from 1982, other prisons. Until his release in 1990, apartheid was gradually dismantled under the leadership of the Nationalist Party. FW, D. Kirk, B. 1936 and in 1994 Mandela, was elected South Africa's first black president, heading a government of national unity. Mandela and D. Kirk shared the Nobel Peace Prize in 1993 for their work for the peace, 
for the peaceful termination of the of the apartheid regime and laying the foundation for the new democratic South Africa, the Noble Federation, 1993. Page 40, we're going to end that there. Thank you for listening.